One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell at least one friend you think might like it too. 62% of voters are unaffiliated with either political party, and I have a feeling we haven't talked to all of them yet. You can also get an additional write-up on this episode and commentary on other issues of the day by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. That is on the internet, everybody. Now, after introducing the word kofif into the popular vernacular, ex-president Donald Trump has again expanded our vocabulary with his request for a special master in the case over classified documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. And while most of us were blissfully ignorant of this term up until a few weeks ago, the use of special masters has actually grown 300% over the past 20 years in federal courts. And so to help us better understand what a special master is, aside from being a little better than an ordinary master, and what they do when not presiding over cases involving Donald Trump, I asked Gabe Roth from Fix the Court back on the show to explain. You might remember him from the episode we did on term limits in the Supreme Court back in November of 2021. As usual, the issue the 24-hour news cycle is telling us to be worried about is a symptom of a much larger problem we really should be worried about. I'd explain more, but Gabe does a much better job. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. But before we get started, Gabe, for the listener who didn't listen to our last episode back in November, can you just explain what Fix the Court is and and what it does? Sure. So Fix the Court is a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization that advocates for greater transparency and accountability in the federal courts and primarily the Supreme Court. So we do this across six fixes. So we want broadcast media to be allowed in courtrooms and live streaming of all federal court arguments, including at the Supreme Court. We want there to be term limits for Supreme Court justices. We want there to be an ethics code for Supreme Court justices. We want the justices and lower court judges to be more open about their finances and their stocks and their recusals. And we want them to divest actually from from all stocks. And then finally, we want the justices and lower court judges to the extent we can get them, their public appearances to be actually open to the public and, and live streams so folks can see the nine outside of the Marble Palace in DC. But before this recording, I was checking out your Twitter feed. Yes. Uh, what, you know, when we first spoke, we were talking about Supreme Court term limits. That was last November. And my understanding from your recent tweet is that there are now three bills. Yeah. Correct. Crazy. Can you tell me can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Supreme Court reform fever has has hit Congress. And mm-hmm. instead of having just this one bill that Ro Khanna, the congressman from Silicon Valley, introduced back in 2020, we've got his bill and bills expire at the end of a congressional term. So January 3rd, 2021, 
you got to start over. So his 2020 bill expired. He reintroduced that bill. So there's one right there that would have 18-year term limits for the Supreme Court and would mm -hmm. exempt the current nine from term limits. In other words, okay. it's an every other year sort of thing. So mm -hmm. if the bill passed, then in 2023, Joe Biden would get a Supreme Court appointment and there would be 10 justices for a little while. And it would take 15 or 20 years of a transitional period where there'd be 10, 11, 12, now down to 11, maybe back up to 12, now down to 10. So the current nine would be exempt because under my understanding of the Constitution and Rokana's understanding of the Constitution, you can't really change a job midstream, right? So when mm. Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and John Roberts and Sonia Sotomayor were confirmed, the job was on SCOTUS for life. So that's what it meant at the time, and that's what it shall be forever. However, there are two new bills that have been recently introduced that do not exempt the current nine from the term limits rubric. So if the, it's called the Supreme Court term, and term stands for something because there's always acronyms in congressional legislation. But if the Supreme Court Term Act passed, new justices would have 18-year term limits but the current justices uh, would not be exempt, so they'd have to leave the, uh, not the bench, because they'd still be, quote, technically Supreme Court justices, but they would stop having to hear cases right away. So just let's make it in practical terms. 2023, Joe Biden gets a Supreme Court pick. Assuming that pick is confirmed, then Clarence Thomas stops hearing cases. 2025, let's again just assume for argument's sake Biden is reelected. Biden gets another pick in 2025. And then the justice who's been on longest after Thomas, because he's gone, would be Chief Justice Roberts. So then Roberts stops hearing cases in 2025. Alito stops hearing cases in 2027. Sotomayor in 2029, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So you'd have an enlarged court, but only the nine most junior justices would hear cases. And Thomas could, I don't know, sit in if there was a recusal or do administrative work or sit on lower court cases. Um, but sort of that's the debate among Democrats, because Republicans have just completely checked out of this debate, unfortunately, because a lot of, I mean, they had a lot of the good ideas on term limits back in the day, but they've checked out because they've gotten three appointees on SCOTUS and don't really care to engage on reform conversations. Two other bills that have been introduced, you mentioned three, so there's the Rokana bill with the uh, exemption, and then there's the House version and a Senate version, so that's bills two and three that do not have the exemption for the current nine. Well, that, that would most likely be filibustered in the Senate, though, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. thing is that, you know, anything that is not naming a post office or keeping the government open is almost impossible to do because everything still needs 60 votes, except, except judicial nominees, right? So judicial nominees, you just need 50 plus the vice president. And so it's unfortunate, but, you know, we're having a lot of difficulty right now that that I, you know, term limits was a Republican idea. I mean, it's so funny, you see these polls, and it's like, you know, 80% of Democrats want term limits, and 50 or 60% of Republicans want term limits. Ever since a question was asked in a poll, it was always the opposite. Democrats were always lukewarm to term limits, and Republicans were gung-ho about ending life tenure, whether at Congress, the Supreme Court, or elsewhere. And it's just totally flipped because of the Trump takeover, the judiciary. And again, I think this is one of these, these policies, it's just... It's a good policy. It has no partisan valence. Over the long term, you don't want judges serving for 40, 45 years on SCOTUS, no matter who's the appointing president. So it's uh, it's unfortunately only a one-sided conversation right now. And, you know, none of these bills are going to pass. But, you know, we definitely have some momentum given that, you know, we went from one bill with one co 11 co-sponsors to now three bills with 33 co-sponsors. And hopefully there'll be a fourth one coming out in the next few weeks. Cool. To, to bring everybody up to speed on this or the folks who haven't. 
done any Googling since the word special master appeared in the news <laughs> cycle. Uh, what, what is a special master exactly and, and when are they typically used? Sure. So it's just judge's helper. If there's going to be a, a complicated case with a lot of documents, with a lot of disputes, within a very finer point of the law, you're going to want a neutral third party to sort of help the judge suss out, you know, what documents can be accepted, what issues are we going to discuss? You know, judges are, are often hard pressed for time. They have giant caseloads, especially on the federal side. And you're going to want, and you know, in a case that's as highly contentious as this, you know, maybe you don't want, you know, as, you know, to, to put a nicer point on the on the judge Cannon side maybe you don't want a, a trump appointed judge being the one mm -hmm. deciding what documents can and can't be used in the litigation with doj you know usually they're used in cases like to give an example when mississippi sues tennessee over an underground aquifer that spans two states the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over that case, but like the Supreme Court doesn't know jack shit about water disputes. <laughs> so they appoint a special master that will sit and hear testimony, collect documents, mediate some disputes. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not a judge, right? So they can't make, you know, rulings that are final, but they can help sort of ease the workflow for a judge. But usually it's just someone to help, you know, tra traffic flow. And, and the reason that there really doesn't need to be one in this case is that the Department of Justice already has a, I think they're being called a taint team, which is just an awful phraseology of it, but they already have a group of men and women who have the level of clearance needed to review these documents who are reviewing the documents. Adding an extra layer of bureaucracy to this process is, I mean, it's straight out of the Trump playbook. Anytime he's been sued, the tactic is distract and delay, and this is a distraction and a delay tactic, so it should be taken at face value as such. So first off, special master entered the the public vernacular. I'm going to do my best to get taint team out there because that's just <laughs> that's just too gorgeous. Filter, to I think they're calling it a filter team this time. Oh, okay. maybe the taint team was something else, but they cleaned it up. You know, the technical term is a perineum. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the first um, time perineum has been used on this podcast. So has, that's great. <laughs> uh, but no, but seriously, the. Uh, it's redundant. It's a lot of redundancies. Yeah. I know it's a complicated case, but like you don't believe. And that's the thing, too, is that it's also the idea that you need to bring in a special master to adjudicate some of the, these concerns is just a builds this perception that DOJ itself is somehow tainted, mm -hmm. is somehow biased against the president and can't do a neutral review of of top secret or confidential documents, which, again, is completely ridiculous. Um, I mean, it, everything is upside down, right? DOJ has way more conservative bureaucrats than than liberal bureaucrats. Number one, number two, this sowing seeds of doubt within the the, the arms of, of the federal government to paint this some type of conspiracy. I mean, clearly it's working because we're talking about it, but but it's just it's a you know a certain point the American people just lose confidence in their government if you keep having former president attacking each brand, you know, the FBI for doing the search, the DOJ for trying to get, you know, the lawyers of the DOJ. It's just, there's no end. And, and when you're playing victim and trying to blame everybody else, it, it really is a, a sad state of affairs when it comes to trying to maintain respect for respectable federal government officials. Just to recap what you said too, and I, there's something important I want to make sure people don't miss here, which is the appointment of a special master to review documents is effectively the judge saying that the Department of Justice or the taint team in the Department of Justice yeah. is 
not equipped to impartially handle these documents. So effectively saying Department of Justice is not qualified to do that. We need an outside party. Is there is there a case to be made that like given the propensity for leaks? So, for example, the Roe v. Wade judgment being released before mm-hmm. it was it was made public. Is there is there an argument to be said that in the time between now and when this court goes to trial, these documents could be leaked further by somebody in the DOJ causing problems and maybe a special master is the best option to sort of sequester these documents? I mean, the special this I think yeah. the special master, if, if the special master is given the ability to hire folks, which sometimes they are, they may be susceptible to leaks. I mean, for all we know, documents have already been leaked, let's say to the Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal, they've had these documents, but they're going to wait until the special master is already appointed, you know, and maybe a special master that's more favorable to the DOJ is appointed. So then maybe the Wall Street Journal will leak them after the special master is appointed. Now everyone's questioning the special masters. I just feel like there's always going to be another like, well, what, you know, yeah, it's just sort of a cascading role of what ifs. And, you know, at some point we got to do the work. So there's, there's kind of a bigger underlying picture here, which is that, again, use of special masters are rare, but it's also growing. So one study I, I came across showed that the use of special masters rose about 300 percent yeah. between 2000 and 2016. One of the big reasons cited and something you mentioned was just an explosion in caseloads. So like, how much has this increased over the last 20 years and, and why? I mean, I, th- I think you you said it correctly. There's more and more complicated cases with more and more complicated implications. There's, you know, and, and there's also just been really high profile things that, that need, you know, need a level of expertise that a lot just judges don't have, right? So there was, a, you know, a Microsoft antitrust case in the 90s that had a special master. Well, we didn't really know much about internet monopoly, you know, tech monopolies in the 90s. Uh, after the September 11th, there was a September 11th victim fund that was set up. And that was an pr- unprecedented event. So there was a special master appointed to help dole out money to victims and their families. There was a special master in Colorado set up for a case about uh, cannabis sales, which again, is something new that that really isn't uh, part of the legal vernacular at this point. You know, and I the legal profession is also, I mean, it's also something that, that builds upon itself, right? There are a million lawyers in the United States and each one of them, not each one of them, but a lot of them try to have these very, very fine specialties. So if you have someone that has one of these specialties, you know, you might want to bring them into a case to help out, uh, especially as you pointed out with time short and with caseloads exploding. So it's, I think it's a con- confluence of several different trends between, between caseloads, between needed expertise, between the overly litigious nature of our of our country and having this neutral third party uh, help adjudicate or at least discuss or review or whatever word you want to use some of the claims that are brought i think is is great i think it's you know the one issue that i have and there was i saw another i don't know if it's in the same study that you mentioned but one study that i saw said that you know something like 90 percent of the special masters appointed are white males so i think that that's just something that we need to sort of keep in the back of our minds saying okay you know we not in the Trump case, because in the Trump case, DOJ is perfectly capable of, you know, determining the classification levels of documents that's like in their job description. So I don't think that applies. But elsewhere in the federal system, you know, I think that there's value to having special masters. But but just like we want, you know, a diverse group of judges and a diverse group of clerks, we also want a diverse group of special masters, you know, who whose experience, you know, is, is diverse. And it's not just this, you know, the same 
27 white males that are constantly being appointed. And hopefully that will change over time. But I think it's also important to state it as a goal and saying, look, you know, this is going to be an issue given the fact that the litigiousness, the caseloads, the need for expertise is continuing. These trends aren't going away. We just need to be a little more cognizant about you know, who's being appointed to those, those positions. You know, one of the things I pulled from our last conversation, too, was that in a lot of cases, the courts are having to work a lot harder because the legislature just isn't doing its job. And we'll just Correct. speak. Yeah, we'll just speak at the federal level where as polarizations increased, less and less has been done by Congress. Is the rise in the use of special masters and the explosion in caseloads almost a symptom of this? of the fact that the law isn't keeping up enough with the changes in our economy and in society. So more of these things have to be decided by the courts rather than resolved via some change in law. You know, that, no, that's really interesting. That's an interesting point. I think that, you know, the lack of work being done by Congress, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, has in, in some ways, you know, made it more difficult to be a lawyer in the United States, right? Because you don't have a constant refreshing, you don't have constant updates. You know, the, the regulations may change, but in terms of the actual laws that you're you know, suing over, a lot of times you're dealing with 2022 situations and, and statutory language from 1922 that is in mm -hmm. dire need of update and isn't. So it, it just adds more confusion. Understanding of, you know, just to give an example, right, the, the main, um, anti-discrimination law, and there's been a few updates to it, but Title VII was written in 1964. I think we understand, our understanding of discrimination is very different in 2022 than it was in 1964. So having to use that sort of 1960 sensibilities on cases in the 2020s uh, does make it hard. I don't know if it necessarily adds to the number of cases that are being filed. I think that's more of a nature of just like the overcomplicated economy and the over-diversification and, you know, Think that that's just more and more companies use lawsuits as part of a business strategy not just a legal strategy so you know it's hard to be able to comment on the trends in that way but you know to the extent that there is vagueness in statutory text yeah that's going to cause you to in general hire some more attorneys and, and 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 potentially adjudicate more but but there is yeah the supply and demand it's a really tough question because it seems to me they're just more and more and more lawyers and you know, does that mean that there are also more and more lawyer, lawyers selling their skills to companies saying, you need a larger litigation team. And then if you have a larger litigation team, because there are more people coming out of law school, what are the, what's the least large litigation teams going to do all day? Well, they're probably going to sue somebody, right? So, <laughs> you know, to me, it's a, a lot of a chicken and the egg problem. But yeah, yeah your earlier, your first point in the question about Congress just being hamstrung, you know, has definitely a lot of negative downstream effects that you know, we'll be feeling for, for decades, at least, or maybe longer until Congress can get actually get its act together and, you know, do things more than like pass one big law every two years. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a second part to that too, that I think is probably more directly tied to an action in Congress, which is if we look at that again, going back to that study, I, I cited that stopped in 2016. And that was at a time when a, Republican Senate had held off on filling court vacancies because, of course, they yes. were not so eager to appoint or so eager to confirm Obama appointed judges or Obama nominated just judges are now, of course, once Trump took office, he appointed about 200 judges in his term. Are judicial vacancies still a problem? And is that contributing to the 
caseload as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes, that is that is if not the number one cause, then then the number two cause. Judicial vacancies are have persisted even even as we had a you know Republican president and a Republican Senate for for four years, and and you know Mitch McConnell and and Trump were and Don McGahn at the White House were able to get two hundred thirty odd judges. Like and the big secret, not a real secret, is that the two hundred thirty judges that Trump replaced were by and large. Republican appointees. There were Reagan and Bush 43 or Bush 41 and Bush 43 appointees. So, you know, which is not to say some of them weren't Clinton appointees and even the odd Obama appointee who just got tired of being a judge, but it was by and large Reagan and Bush appointees who were either retiring outright or taking senior status, which is a form of semi retirement that judges can take starting at 65 based on how long they've been on the bench. So, you know, you're replacing like for like. Back in the day, that wasn't so much the case. That when you were a judge, you just retire. It didn't matter necessarily as much as it does now who the appointing president was. But it matters a great deal to a lot of Reagan appointees and Bush appointees who the appointing president is. So some of them who didn't weren't able to leave during the Trump years are probably going to wait until the I don't know the DeSantis years or the <laughs> you know McCarthy years or whoever and the Pence years and, and stay on. And that's, I mean, forget the fact that that's just ridiculous because, you know, there's a whole other process of appointments. You know, the home state senators have to agree and their their um, compromise that can be had. You know, a, a woman was just appointed a judge in New York who was actually a Trump nominee and he didn't get a, she didn't get a hearing because she was announced very late in his term. And Biden's like, yeah, she seems okay. So, you know, like there are neutral people, not a lot of them these days, but there are yeah. people out there that can be appointed by either president. That being said, the vast majority of judges do, you know, just like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wanted to retire during a Democratic president's term and she stayed on and Trump came in and she tried to hold on but didn't. And similarly, you know, Scalia was trying to hold on during the Obama years as he was getting older and sicker, but, you know, was not able to, and obviously he was replaced with Gorsuch, so like replacing like, but that's generally what happens, that judges are trying to, to pick their replacements or at least pick the president who's going to be replacing them. So in any given t time, you have 50 or 100 judges who are eligible to take that senior status, to take that semi-retirement status, which means that the president would get a pick to replace them, but they're not, they're hanging, no one can force them to take senior status, and they're just hanging on and waiting for a president with whom they agree to sit in the Oval Office. So that you're always going to, under the current system, you are always going to have 50 to 100 vacancies, no matter how quickly you appoint judges. And, you know, on top of the fact that caseloads have exploded and we're, we need 80 to 250 more lower court judges to just get back to like par to where we were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and just so your listeners know, we've got about 870 lower court judges. So adding we either need to increase it by 10% or by 33%, the current number of lower court federal judges makes the caseloads at a point where there's you know only only 500 cases per judge, right? That's sort of the magic, the magic number is like 525 weighted case filings per judge. And we're, we're way over that now. So, um, you know, I, I don't see a way to fix that other than, you know, expediting the, the confirmation process and being able to confirm like, 30 judges at a time, not this one at a time thing that that unfortunately has to happen. So, you know, it's a problem that's going to persist. Is that why we're having such a tough time filling it? Because the the thing that stood out to me is since 2017, since Trump took office, we've had Senate aligned with the president. So Republican yeah. Senate throughout the Trump years or Democratic Senate 
throughout Biden's term thus far. And and I was curious as to why they haven't been able to fill them faster, given there's that partisan unity. It's, it's, it's the process. It's the steps. Yeah, yeah the steps. You got to nominate them and then you have to fill out the questionnaire and then you have to fill out a disclosure report and a statement of net worth. And then you have to meet with all the senators on the committee privately. And then you have a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then there's a vote that's ta- that takes place later after your after your hearing, a week or two after your hearing. But, but the other the opposing party can say, let's wait a week to vote on this nominee. Like that's a rule. You can just say we want to wait a week. So then that week is all always granted. And so you know, and this is also assuming that nothing else comes up. You know, in the research that requires a second hearing or supplemental questions. And then you got to be able to bring it to the Senate. And the Senate is only in session, I don't know, ten or twelve days a month. And so, you know, you've got to find time on the Senate floor. And because it's a 50-50 Senate, you've got to be sure that all Democrats are physically in the Senate. The Senate doesn't have a remote voting capability like the House does. So you physically have to have all 50 Democratic senators healthy, um, not with, you know, Pat Leahy broke his back. Cortez Masto had COVID. Joe Manchin's had health issues. Like all of that, all 50 of them have to physically be there. In order, because you don't know how the Republicans are going to vote, or the Republicans see, oh well, maybe I'll, you know, someone like Mitt Romney is like, oh well, maybe I'll vote for this judge, but wait, there's three Democrats missing. Oh, if I just vote against this person, won't become a judge. Great, you know, so that 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 has happened several times, you know, and, and Schumer has to wait for all 50 of his guys and gals to be physically in the Senate chamber, and then there's a, a threat of a filibuster, and you can kill the filibuster for judges, but. Again, this is just a very long, drawn-out process with a million different potential opportunities for snags, and you have to know what your vote count is going in. You have to have everyone physically in town. There should, you know, there should be remote voting. There shouldn't be this weak delay. Questions, you know, there shouldn't be these questions after the fact that slows things down. If you have something to ask the judge, you have staff to do research on them. You don't need to like go back later and ask them extra questions. The hearings are all a farce because the judges are all asked the same questions. Are you originalist? What do you think about abortion? And the judges give the same answers, you know, no matter what level. So, you know, the whole thing needs to be re reconceived. And unfortunately, um, you know, the Democrats have just basically played by the same rules in this Congress. You know, we've talked, I think we've talked a lot of theory or maybe in abstract terms about this. Like, what are the real impacts? Why should people be concerned about this? Well, delay of justice, right? I mean, that to me is, is you know, the average time from, you know, uh, an arraignment to a trial in the federal bench is two to three years, right? If you're a victim of a crime and you're the, the, the perpetrator of that crime is being prosecuted by DOJ and DOJ has got to wait two or three years to prosecute them, that's, that's pain, Right, you're sitting there, and you're, you know, whatever the, the federal crime. I mean, a lot of these federal crimes are like, you know, wire fraud, crossing state lines to do X, you know, because most crimes are obviously prosecuted by local DAs. But you know, if you're the victim, of what you know, victim of discrimination, for you know, to use that example again, you've got to wait several years for a trial. I mean, if even if there is a trial, I mean, most jurisdictions there's like five trials a year, if that. So. It's not just two to three year waits for trial, but two to three year wait for any sort of you know serious adjudication. Uh, that weighs on you if you're a victim. And on the other side of the coin, if you're someone who you know, believes that you were wrongly accused of a crime or wrongly charged with the crime, you've got to sit in detention or on house arrest or you know even if you're free of your own recognizance, like you've got to wait around for justice to come to you if you're wrongly accused of something. And so you know it's just it adds a lot of uh, 
stress and mental anguish and there's a financial aspect to that in terms of you know economic issues but it's really just you know when a crime happens the result of which being in limbo for so many years has real concerns real impacts on real people and having you know i mean there's something called the speedy trial act i mean it's even in the constitution saying you know that 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 adjudications of crime should should happen you know at, at a certain pace and on top of that there's a speedy trials act but these things are not being followed and if they are being followed they're being you know they're they're finding loopholes around them and you know justice delayed is justice denied is what i always say so that to me is the real impact of just having fewer judges that are able to hear fewer cases and give fewer victims you know fewer results I, i'm not anticipating the Senate's going to get any quicker in confirming judges. So I'm assuming this no. vacancy problem is just going to be persistent for the foreseeable future. You know, getting back to the special master, do you see the use of special masters continuing to grow given this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's, um, I mean, there's an economic incentive to having them as well, right? Because a lot of the special masters that are being appointed you know, are arbitrators at, or neutrals as they like are like to call at lit these big litigation firms so a lot of former judges after they finish their judging you know a lot of state court judges you have to retire at a certain age or federal judges you're allowed to retire whatever but a lot of them go back into private practice at one of these big arbitration shops so you know there's like i said there's no trials anymore so a lot of federal and state really adjudications end up going to a, an, ar an arbiter or an arbitration and a lot of those folks are sort of primed to being special masters because you're supposed to be a neutral person that is capable of seeing both sides and has certain expertise, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And in these firms, there's one called JAMS, ADR, ADR is Alternative Dispute Resolution, so like, you know, arbitration. Mm -hmm. It's ad advantageous to them to say, you know, look, if our, you know, if you're JAMS ADR and one of your guys or gals becomes the special master in the Trump case, I mean, that's a huge boon for your your bottom line. So I think there's a, an economic incentive to, to, the, to the proliferation of special masters um, that goes beyond any, any single case. And I want, to, I want to state this for the listener, and you tell me whether I'm off base here or not, but what I see happening if this continues to grow is you effectively have this unofficial part of the judiciary branch that's not accountable to Correct. the people in terms of appointment hearings, anything like that, not accountable for ethics in the same way that, again, you know, your organization is, is really trying to reform the, you know, ethics of people sitting on the bench, but there, but I would say there's, there's a lower standard for, again, if you're, if you're not officially appointed and, and, and there's also a big profit motive here. So potentially we could have a very big, very expensive private bureaucracy effectively that's not really accountable to the people that's making up for the fact that we can't appoint people to the bench is that a fair yeah oh absolutely absolutely i mean i think that that's you know it, it's funny because it, it parallels a lot what you hear from conservatives about the administrative state right congress hasn't been able to do jack shit in 20 or 40 years depending on who you ask and that's just led to people in the executive branch taking on more responsibility and whether you know from energy environment healthcare right these bureaucrats are making decisions that you know in a functioning system congress would make and congress has accountability and the federal bureaucrats do not really so you can make the same argument or you are making that same argument and i would agree with 
this class of special masters, right? If you are being appointed by a judge to do a certain job, I mean, you could be unappointed, right? Microsoft case that I mentioned earlier, the special master in that case was unappointed because Microsoft didn't, you know, thought he was biased and the judge agreed. So theoretically, you could recall a special master on the one hand. On the other hand, they are given a fair amount of power to, you know, adjudicate claims over documents or look into documents, review documents, review um, at least preliminarily disputes between parties. And yeah, I mean, a lower court federal judge, an Article Three judge appointed by a president confirmed by a Senate, you know, there's the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act that, that applies to them, that if they act out, there are certain sanctions that can happen. If you're a lower court judge, you've always got the appeals court that could overturn you. And if you're an appeals court, you always have the Supreme Court that overturn you. Supreme Court, you got nothing, but you know, <laughs> the, at least the other levels of the judiciary have, have someone over you. But, um, but yeah, I think that's a really well taken point that, that it is a very powerful position that doesn't have uh, sort of set rules and regulations when it comes to, to ethical uh, behavior. That being said, I mean, there is a, you know, course, because these always exist, a special master membership organization that right now <laughs> is looking into creating some rules and regulations some ethical guidelines. So I think the point that you're, you're bringing up is something that, that, you know, hopefully those who are in the know about when they're being appointed and who they might be, and just to have sort of their finger, finger on the pulse of this trend are actually looking at imposing some ethical guidelines on their members. And I don't know how they'd be enforced, but I mean, at least that conversation I know is happening behind the scenes. I mean, I wish the same conversation was happening at the Supreme Court and it's not. They have no ethical guidelines currently and efforts in Congress to impose ethics on them. I think we might get a House bill that will do that, but it's not going to pass in the Senate because it's not going to get 60 votes. So, you know, I think that that conversation is definitely happening and hopefully it'll I think it may be a good thing just overall, as much as I, again, disagree with there being a special master in this particular case, I think it might be a good thing overall that we're having this conversation about these un unaccountable or unelected court helpers now, because down the road, I think it bring out these issues like ethics that you mentioned that can be addressed that might not have been had we not been having these conversations. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review, either giving it five stars, writing something nice, whatever tickles your fancy. You can also learn more about Gabe's organization at fixthecourt.com. That is spelled exactly as it sounds. I'll assume you can do so. You can also get additional information on this episode and other issues of the day via the YDHTY newsletter at ydhty.com slash news. So as I mentioned in the beginning, the bigger story isn't necessarily the special master, but the circumstances that have increased their demand. A lack of legislative action means too many federal laws and regulations use outdated language not relevant in today's economy, and congressional gridlock means filling vacancies in the court is harder to do. Even with one party control over the Senate and the White House for the past six-ish years, they've still been unable to appoint justices fast enough. And this creates problems such as judges hanging on until a member of their party is in the White House and the bigger issue of delayed justice for victims of crimes or those wrongly accused. And there's also the threat that with increasing vacancies as judges retire or die on the bench, as has happened, 
special masters become an unaccountable shadow branch of government with a profit motive to keep themselves relevant. So the bigger, bigger picture is that this is another way partisanship has rendered the federal government less capable of doing its job. And if we focus on reforms that reduce polarization and electoral reforms such as proportional representation and ranked choice voting have shown to do this, we can get back to the point where judges can judge cases again. Whoo! As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye. Oh,